Hello and welcome to episode 22 of Harry's podcast. I hope you're well, I hope you're settled. As always, I hope you're feeling creative. The last time I spoke, I spoke about my positivity for the future despite coming into those shitty winter months. That positivity is still there, just about, it's holding on. If I sound a little bit different, it's because I'm coming out of what has been a 10 day cold or virus. I went for a COVID test, thankfully I got a negative, but work have told me to self-isolate anyway, and I'm glad they did because, yeah, if this is what getting old feels like when you get an illness, then I don't, I don't want to get old because it's been about 10 days now of coughing and chest pains and all that stuff. So not man flu, definitely not man flu. I spoke to a professional doctor on the phone and he said, it sounds like a virus, get a COVID test. So um, definitely a virus, not man flu. So yeah, what else has been going on? I just today, if we work backwards, I posted Streets Apart online, a short film I did about four years ago as part of my 12 Shorts in 12 Months project. And it's taught me a few things already. Essentially, I wanted to post it online because I thought, you know, I'm making a lot of connections on social media and those people don't know my work at all. And I only posted the short film maybe twice, four years ago. And it's work that I'm actually proud of. I've The thing that I do is I normally post something online and then I distance myself from it and never watch it again. And so this week, because I wanted to get my files and work and all that stuff in one safe place, well, two safe places, so they were all they were never going to get deleted, I rewatched a couple of things and I really liked Streets Apart. I think it's funny and it's got a nice little charm to it. So I thought, you know, why the hell not? I reposted Lonely Guy and so I thought, let's repost this. And people seem to like it, find it funny, and it's nice to just get work out there. And the other reason why I was doing it was because I went on a social media marketing webinar thing that normally I would hate and would make me cringe, but I went on it and it was free and it was really good and it was kind of inspiring and and motivating and it wasn't really teaching you anything that you didn't already know, but just going on that webinar made me think, yeah, I'm a filmmaker and I'm promoting myself as one and maybe I'm not doing such a good job at promoting myself if I've not posted a film that I think is good. You know, I've, I've only posted it twice in four years, and those two times was maybe the month it came out. So I've, I've got work there, and I'm not really sharing it, and I think it's a common thinking pattern of people who they make a piece of work, they put it out there, and it feels okay because it's new and it's fresh, and it's kind of like, look at my work, it's new. And then time goes by, and you don't really want to post it because it looks spammy, it looks arrogant and self-involved. And so it just just stays on a desktop somewhere or it stays on your homepage. And so the lady who was doing this social media marketing webinar said there is, there's nothing wrong with sharing that work because the truth of the matter is people don't realise it's old work. You know, unless it's 720p and it was shot on a potato, people aren't going to know when you made it. They're just going to watch it, hopefully, and they're going to judge it. I can tell by people's comments already and private messages that they didn't know it was old. They think it's new stuff. 
So uh, shout out to Clinique uh, Moisturizer, by the way. I don't know if I'm going to repost everything because then that can get a little bit annoying. But it just made me think about the obsession we have as, uh, I don't even like saying this, but content creators, filmmakers, the obsession we have about everything being new. And I get it as well because if someone did post something and they said, hey, here's a short film from three years ago, it would kind of have to be, there'd have to be something in the the writing that they were putting there that made me think, oh yeah, well, I need to check that out. Because for some reason, if something happened three years ago, I'm like, well, I would have, I would have known about that. You know, if that was, if that's hot shit, I'd have been on that. But that's obviously stupid and not the case because, you know, you can't be everywhere at once and your attention is all over the place. So to, to, to make sure that you're seeing everything and that everyone's seeing your stuff, it's just not possible. So like I say, I took part in a social media marketing webinar that was specifically for filmmakers. And although it didn't blow my mind with new tips and tricks, as they always promise, it did give me the confidence to think, well, yeah, I have got work there and I'm not ashamed of it. Some of it, you know, maybe I am, but a lot of it I'm not. And so why not post that stuff out there? Not everybody knows your whole back catalogue. So that's the piece of info I would give out or the, or the advice I would get out is if you've got work from two years ago and you've not posted it online for 10 months, then why not get it out there? Especially when you're putting it on a different platform, you're putting it on Instagram, which I'd never put Streets Apart on. And also, uh, you know, it sounds really businessy and LinkedIn, but putting subtitles on it because there are people who I've met at film festivals and English isn't their first language. And maybe they wouldn't watch my work if if it wasn't subtitled. I don't know. I don't want to make uh, assumptions, but they always tell you subtitles get more eyeballs and more views. So that's what I've done for some of my short films. I'm not going to do it for, for all of them. It did stem from me backing all my stuff up as well, because I, I'd had in the last 10 months, and this is definitely maybe COVID anxiety related, but I did have two nightmares of me looking for a film that I'd lost or had been deleted and that's that is like for a filmmaker that is terrifying so I went on my hard drives and my computer and kind of consolidated a few things and backed things up and made sure I had 4k versions and 1080p versions and uh, and subtitled versions and I would I would recommend that I mean I don't know who needs to hear this but back up your shit like films your scripts everything just back it up because yeah the nightmare was bad but i imagine the reality of it would be a whole lot worse and thankfully you know touch wood i've not in the five or six years that i've been making films kind of semi-seriously i've never had a disaster and i have heard of them i've never had one i hope it never happens i mean that it's like that is the worst that must be one of the worst things you know losing a film or losing a chunk of footage so yeah i wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy so that that's kind of how it all stemmed from the the, the combination of going through my old work and then going on that social media webinar and going you know what i'm going to post this and 200 and odd people have watched it on instagram and have left some nice comments doesn't mean it's going to lead to anything but it's just nice to get the work out there again and the people who were involved with that short film they at the least deserve the work being seen again because i mean they might not be proud of it but they did do a very good job and I, i'm proud of what they did because it's entertaining to me it's entertaining anyway 
So it was nice to get an old short film online that people didn't think was old and most people got a kick out of it. So that was nice. My tips on the back of that would be back up your shit. And also, if you do have a piece of work that you are secretly proud of, then don't keep it a secret. Why not post that film? Because you never know what's going to come out of it. The worst thing that happens is you put it out there, it gets a couple of likes, it gets a comment of somebody saying, oh man, this was really good, or I forgot how good this was. And what's there to gain? Well, there's loads to gain. Loads of people, you know, we make contacts on social media every day and there's loads of people that could watch it and really like it. And you might make a contact, you might make a new collaborator. So put it out there, it doesn't hurt. The last time we spoke, I was also eyeing up a BFI application on the 30th of November. Now I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure, listeners, because the clock is ticking. We're like two weeks away from the 30th, pretty much. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm not, not feeling that too confident, especially when I haven't really got an idea and I would have to write a script and come up with a budget and maybe attach a producer and maybe find photos of the locations and do all the statements and the writing and everything that you have to do for a BFI application. So not feeling too clever about that plan at the moment, but that's okay because I'm finishing up some short films. I've got uh, a TV script that I'm sort of trying to start and, and I want that for the new year. And I, you know, I said a couple of months ago that I was going to have a TV script ready to swap with my friend Lee. That never happened. Sorry, Lee. I know I've not said sorry in person. So I'm going to use my podcast to say sorry. I feel bad about it. Um, but I will get that done for early next year because I need a new TV script. I need something uh, that shows my writing. So the BFI application, yeah, that's that's not looking good, but that's okay because I think as a filmmaker, this is such a long old game that you have to plant seeds. And sometimes those seeds are deluded seeds and they ain't gonna they ain't gonna grow. And I'm sorry for this analogy. I, I started so I've got to finish. They're not gonna grow, but that's okay. You've you've kind of you've taken a chance. And three weeks ago I was thinking, you know what, let's get an idea. Let's get right in. Let's get that in. And at the moment now, the idea just hasn't dropped. And if the idea is not going to drop, it doesn't matter about your career plans or whatever you want to do because you need the idea. The idea is everything. So who knows? I might wake up tomorrow morning and I might have the idea and it quickly snowballs. But at the moment, it's not happening. The hypnotic appeal of the BFI application did inspire a few things though mainly dirty horrible vimeo sessions where you watch like 10 to 15 of the greatest short films ever made and then question what the hell are you doing so it did inspire that and I, so i went down the vimeo rabbit hole like we all do i try not to do it that often i try to have i try to do it like once every th three months like I'm, I'm being honest there but i know there are a lot of vimeo binge addicts listening to this right now and you know fair play fair play do do you that's the main thing you do you but it it can be a bad thing if you're doing it too often you can feel shitty and you can be a jealous filmmaker and i am not immune to that so that's why i try and ration myself to sort of once every three months you know i'll let myself peek at the films that have gone to sundance or the films that have gone to Cannes or one can and one of these short films 
I, I, I really need to recommend because I watched it. It blew my mind. I was just in awe of this filmmaker. So much so that I've reached out to him to be on the podcast. I don't know if he will. He's not even replied to the message yet, so that doesn't look good. But that's that's how strongly I, I felt about this short film. And um, his name is Tu Yang. I think I'm pronouncing that right. It's Q-I-U Yang. And the film is called A Gentle Night. And it's 15 minutes and you can see it on Amazon Prime at the moment. And it won the Palm Door. It won for, for short film. It won the best prize that a short film can win at the Cannes Film Festival. And you just need to go and see it. Pause this podcast and go and watch A Gentle Night. I'm not going to spoil anything, but essentially the, the story of the short film is uh, a daughter has gone missing and it's kind of the, the 12 hours or so uh, in the mother's life, you know, the mother of the daughter who's gone missing. And it's just a brilliant short film. And you can you can watch that film and study it and it should be studied really in film schools because that that is just it's a perfect piece of filmmaking in my opinion and the email that i wrote to him to sort of try and convince him to come on the podcast you know it was very fanboyish my main statement in the email was that this film looks like it was made by someone who's been making films for 20 years in sort of the visual economy of it and yeah, I can't say enough superlatives about this short film, so go and watch A Gentle Night. And to be honest, when you come across a film like that, for, for me, I, I'm just in awe of something like that, and I'm not I, I'm not actually jealous of something like that, that something, something so good exists, and I, I might not ever reach it. I just kind of really appreciate it, and because I'm, a, you know, I'm a film fan first. And I wanted to get him on the podcast because he's only made a handful of short films, one of which obviously is is the one that won this prize at Cannes. And I just wanted to see where he was going with his with his career. I've read that he's he's writing a feature film, but he said something in an interview that I found very interesting, which was he said that he he didn't consider himself a career filmmaker and he he just wanted to make films when he had an idea for a film and he was very passionate about an idea for a film so he didn't he doesn't think of filmmaking as his career and i just thought that was really interesting and the total you know worryingly the total antithesis of of my ethos which is you know this is a career and i'm trying to make a career so uh, I, I hope he replies i'll keep you updated and if he doesn't i won't feel too offended because i'm sure he's just in an office somewhere, staring at his palm door whilst he writes his feature film debut, which I'm sure will be brilliant. So yeah, that's Too Young and A Gentle Night, so please go and watch that. And I mean, it's not all been positive short film watching experience because I have watched some horrific short films recently and I've watched some horrific short films that have kind of been touted as, you know, really good short films or I've seen them knocking about online and I've thought, ooh, that looks good, or that that's got into a good festival. I'll I'll check that out, and I've uh, I've queued a few of them up, and I'm sorry, but some of them have been really bad. And you know, I'm the first person to say if something's great, I'm I'm not bitter. I'm not always trying to look at things negatively. There's been some short films that have been hyped up recently where I've gone, you know what, that's that's really special, and that filmmaker's an exciting talent. But then also, and I'll keep it to myself, so I won't name any names here, but there's been some short films where I've I've watched them and I've gone, 
that doesn't feel like a short film to me. That feels like it's a government advert or it's uh, it's for a charity or something because the message of the film is first. You know, they're slapping you with the message or the topic of the film and there's very little entertainment there. And I kind of just want to talk about this for a, for a minute or so because it makes me... You know, if we're, if we're looking at it in light of the BFI applications, it, it makes me worried why that's happening and why are people making films like that? Because it doesn't really, uh, it doesn't interest me, it doesn't excite me because, you know, the entertainment factor of the film, the story of the film should come first. But for some reason, a lot of these message type films are happening and I guess there's a couple of reasons why this would happen. And I think, I mean, partly it's to do with sort of amateur filmmakers and the, them thinking that a message and a topic and a hard-hitting thing should um, should be front and centre. And then the filmmaking isn't that good or it can't live up to, you know, the storytelling can't live up to it. So, you know, for example, at the moment, mental health is is, is a massive issue. It's a massive topic. So there's going to be a lot of films about mental health and there's going to be a lot of awful films about mental health. And I think as well, you know, it's, you know, it's partly that, it's partly filmmakers kind of trying to, trying to exceed the sort of skill set. And, um, you know, and that sounds really shitty. It sounds, that sounds like a really horrible thing to say, but it, but it's the truth. And, and I've spoken before about how sometimes you need to know your own strengths and, you know, sort of play in your own sandbox and know what you can do. And if I was to do a big sort of social message film, I think maybe I would fall on my face as well. But so that's that's one reason. I think it's to do with the filmmakers sort of biting off more than they can chew. I do think it's to do with the funding because funding has to tick boxes and so you feel the need to to say something or feel like you're making a political statement because you think well that'll that'll get me the funding. And then also I think it's kind of you see it all the time with Oscar nominated films or BAFTA nominated films. It's kind of like this social commentary of you need to comment on society's wider issues and to become a serious filmmaker that's what that's what you need to do. And, you know, when it's done well, then it then that's fine. It can it can be a brilliant film. But out of my own curiosity the other day, I wrote down like 10 or 15 of my favourite short film, um, favourite feature films, sorry. And very few of them, a very small percentage of them, were actually, you know, the message was first or or a social issue. So, and maybe it's the same with you. Maybe if you think of your favourite films now off the top of your head, maybe, maybe they're not that sort of social issue, hard-hitting thing that, that some of these short films are trying to be. And I just think as well, it might be an attention thing. You know, it's kind of a, an insecurity from the filmmaker of, well, we need, to, we need to talk about something that's worth eyeballs. And I just think, well, if something's funny or if something's entertaining or something's dramatically engrossing, then you're going to get that. You're going to get that attention. So that's partly been on my mind because I saw a lot of good short films, a lot of bad short films, and also the looming BFI application that I'm probably not going to, I'm not going to hit. But it did make me think, why do filmmakers behave that way? And um, maybe it's just normal. And, and there's nothing you can do to prevent it. And it's just the normal evolution of 
a filmmaker from a student to sort of trying to get in the industry of wanting to be seen, wanting to be heard. Let's talk about an important issue. Um, it might help us get the funding, uh, etc. And the thing is, when it's done well, I couldn't give a shit. I don't care who's in your film, what the film's about, if there's hard-hitting topics on your in your short film, such as rape or suicide, couldn't give a shit if it's good. If it's really good, then it's going to go all over the world. People are going to watch it and, and they're, they're going to love it. But if I click play on your short film and in the first 30 seconds I get a whiff of, oh, God, this is, this is the message first. You know, it's like somebody banging on your front door and throwing a pamphlet in your face of an important issue before they've even introduced themselves, then I'm I'm either clicking pause uh, and, and not finishing that film, or I'm watching the rest of that film hating you and hating everyone that was a part of that film. I know that sounds aggressive. It kind of is. That's the type of mood I'm, I'm in right now. But that's, that is the God's honest truth. That's how I feel watching the film. So you got to be careful. That's a little warning. Be careful about that. Okay, that got a little bit too much. I'm sorry about that. Okay, what else have I been doing? Uh, I went big, big, big on Bong Joon-ho. I watched three Bong Joon-ho films, sort of back to back to back. The one I'm going to talk about is uh, Barking Dog Never Bites because, damn, that's a good film. That's a really good feature film. And you know what? I saw Memories of Murder years ago, 10 years ago, and it blew my mind. And for, for whatever reason, it took me 10 years to get to his debut film because it was so hard to get hold of and I, I could just never watch it. And also, I'm being a little bit honest here and I'm being a little bit prejudiced. I thought, nah, that's not going to be that good. And then I was wrong. Boy, was I wrong. Uh, and weirdly, uh, when I was going down the bong hole, I went and watched his BAFTA screenwriting seminar and he they show a clip of this because they're doing sort of, you know, a, a nice cover of his whole career. And he gets really embarrassed and he's like, you know, don't, please don't watch my debut feature film. It's terrible. It's, I can't remember what he calls it. I think he calls it cheesy or over the top or whatever. But it's not. Like it's, for me... It's just a really good film. I mean, Memories of Murder is going to be is always going to be the the number one for me, and we all know Parasite is a bit of a masterpiece. But seriously, Barking Dogs Never Bite is awesome. the The premise is is kind of silly, which is a guy who's you know a bit adrift is getting annoyed by a dog that barks in his apartment building, and so he decides to try and kill the dog. And that's all I'm going to say, because in amazing Bong Joon-ho fashion, it kind of just builds from there. And the reason why I was so amazed about Bong Joon-ho sort of condemning his first feature film was because on every level, it was kind of brilliant. Now, obviously, visually, he he's on a different level to most filmmakers working today, now. And and even Memories of Murder is, is stunning and, and so visually clever and elaborate, but Back then, even for his debut feature film, there, there were a couple of things in the feature film where it was like nice little visual setups and payoffs and there's there's a beautiful scene where the, the main character is walking a dog and the smoke sort of fills the park and fills the frame that the character's in and, and the dog disappears. 
and he tries finding the dog. And it's just really brilliant work and interesting work. And so I was surprised on that sort of component of it, of him being ashamed. But then also, like, narratively and story-wise, what goes on in terms of the screenwriting is really clever as well. So for, for a writer, you need to check out this film. And then also, as a filmmaker, or a, if you're a Bong Joon-ho fan and you've, you're not a completist, you haven't watched the debut feature film yet, like I hadn't for 10 years, then then seriously, track it down. And also, it made me feel a little bit connected to him a bit more as a human because, you know, you think to yourself, oh, my my work is a bit shit or, like, my previous stuff or my older work, I shouldn't show that to anyone. But then you have sort of a master like him and he thinks like that. And he doesn't think like that about his short film work. He thinks that about one of his feature films. I have also been trying to make my way through Eric Roma films, so... I'd watched a bunch of his short films that are great. There's one called Bakery Girl, which is really good. You'll probably find that on YouTube. And then I watched Le Collectionuse. Don't judge my French. Don't judge it. Uh, Le, Le Collectionuse, I think. And that's five years of French studying, by the way, GCSE. And then I watched My Night at Maud's. I, don't, I can't remember the French name of that. Eric Roma, to me, is just a really fascinating filmmaker because I've not watched a great deal of his I feel like I know his work through other filmmakers that always happens he's kind of like he's the starting point for so many other filmmakers so I kind of I think I discovered him through Noah Baumbach and Noah Baumbach is obviously so influenced by Eric Roma you know one of his kids is called Roma so I discovered him through Noah Baumbach and then I've only, like I say, I've only watched a couple of things, but, and I feel like I know, I know his work far greater than the stuff that I've watched because I've read stuff about him and the way he worked. And he's obviously very well known for his dialogue driven films. They're, they're very kind of slowly paced and yeah, it's all about the dialogue, the intelligent dialogue and the characters and the relationships and they're very French, obviously. They're very French films. And I like French films. So I watched My Night at Maud's. And it's a weird one, really, because I've seen two of his feature films now. And I kind of really enjoyed both of them. But I can also understand people checking out after an hour and going, you know what? I'm not watching this shit because this is, this is testing. And, and I get that because there was a point at My Night at Maud's where... There was 20 minutes in the, med- in the middle where I was like, mm, I'm not sure about this. But then by the end, it's almost like you've spent so much time with it, it kind of, it just really works and it's an enjoyable experience. And I've been thinking about the film for the last couple of days and not every film does that. And there are some conventionally made films that are entertaining, maybe even more entertaining than My Night at Maud's, but you forget it. You know, it's called, it's sort of Krispy Kreme cinema. But I will be thinking of My Night at Maud's for quite a while. And even more importantly, I'm definitely going to get on the next film, whatever that is in the series. I'm going to get on that as soon as possible. But it did make me think that whilst I was watching the film, I, I was I was really impressed with it. And I, But I was impressed with the acting because, you know, that's a lot of dialogue. But I was also really impressed with the editing. I was kind of watching it and, I, and one of the cuts happened and I was like you know what, the editing in this film is really good. And then I was kind of thinking, why? You know, why is this really good? Because it's not complicated. You know, it's just two people talking in a room. 
But then I was trying to apply it to my own work and I've been editing some stuff at the moment and I've been talking to John Dean again, who's editing Horror Cells. And we've been trying to make fine cuts on on that and sort of adding little things and just to try and add more character to the film and and sort of more character out of the actors, m- more moments that we can go, yeah, that, that feels like that character. And I feel like Eric Roma has a really nice pace and it kind of draws you in. And it's strange how if a film is paced slowly, it can have those two really strong effects. It can either really pull you in and you, you think about the film for for days, months, years afterwards because it sort of conveyed a certain feeling that stays with you or it can totally put you off and go, Jesus, this is far too slow. Like this is this is too slow. And I don't know whether that's somebody's sort of attention span that we all know is sort of changing over the years and everything has to be like quick, 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 fast, fast. But I'm going to look forward to watching his films and focusing on the editing and the pacing. And I guess Joanna Hogg as well. Noah Baumbach is a big Eric Roma fan and Joanna Hogg has, has cited him as a big influence. And I love both of those filmmakers. And it's interesting how I think Noah Baumbach's films are hilarious and and very witty and entertaining. But even Baumbach films are too slow for some people or there's not enough going on. And Joanna Hogg, maybe even more so than Baumbach because she doesn't really have lols. She She's not really a gag writer. But again, I think her work is beautiful and I've spoken about exi- Exhibition on here before. And if you've not watched Exhibition, then please... They're, they're your two pieces of homework, viewing homework from me, is watch uh, A Gentle Night and try and watch Exhibition. Because especially for actors, you, you know what? Any sort of um, collaborator can watch Exhibition and get something out of it. Because I think the directing is really interesting as well. But actors, I, I feel like Exhibition could be taught at drama school in terms of naturalistic acting and and, and sort of just acting for the screen. The bong rabbit hole led me to the Eric Roma rabbit hole, and I'm, I'm going to carry on down with that. Going back to saying, you know, I've only watched two of his films, two feature films, I do feel like he's a filmmaker who I I kind of, I admire because I have a similar sensibility in terms of the pacing and, and, and the way he sees filmmaking as ridiculously a hyperbolic statement as that is, comparing yourself to Eric Roma. But but I think that makes sense, I think. And with Horror Cells and the editing, I'm I'm really enjoying that because I've spoken about my previous sort of frustration and hatred with editing, but I'm learning to love it. And I it's been really interesting to edit some things myself, some shorter stuff. And then Horror Cells, which is clocking in at eight minutes, I've done sort of three or four passes of notes with John. And it's been good to have that distance and keep coming back to it. I, I feel like I owe John an apology here on the podcast because I have done that thing where I've given him a note and then like two passes later, I've gone, mm, actually, and then I've gone the opposite of of that thing, which I think is because, you know, when a film evolves and the, the cut is changing, previous notes are kind of voided or, or not voided, but um, they they throw up new things where you go well no actually we we do need to see him walk off like i know i said don't let's not see him walk off but now it makes sense for him to walk off i think i think that's what's happening john or maybe i'm just being a bit shit 
and not decisive enough. As a filmmaker, when you put something out there, you you want to watch the film back and just go, it's all good. It's all, it's all good. It might not be exactly what you wanted, but you can't control that, so that that's done. But in the editing, what you have, obviously, you can control. And it's been really nice seeing cuts of the film and going, no, nah, maybe not that, maybe not that shot because we need this, this this makes more sense. Or, you know, can we see this actor shake his head a little bit more because that's kind of his character. So we need to see more of that. I don't think I've ever put out a film where I've where I've felt really bad about the editing of it and gone, mm, that, that's, that's not really exactly what I wanted. And which is good because sometimes I think to myself, am I rushing? Do I rush things? And, you know, I, I don't think I am. And I think that's why the Eric Roma sort of personal retrospective that I'm doing on his films is good because it's part of the reason why the editing and the filmmaking feels so perfect and it's because it's considered and, and time has been taken. And I sometimes worry that we live in an age where everything is provoking you to rush and speed things up. And, you know, with Final Cut Pro, you can edit things quickly. You know, you can bang the footage in there and you can do quick edits and all that stuff. And obviously back then you couldn't do that. So cuts meant something. Obviously, the most laughable example of this in recent years has been the editing sequence in Bohemian Rhapsody. Now, if you're laughing, you obviously already know what I'm talking about. If you are unaware of what I'm talking about, all you need to do is press pause on the podcast, go to YouTube and type in Bohemian Rhapsody editing and find the video with the most views and the most hilarious comments because there is a scene uh, in Bo Rap where I believe it's the marketing sort of record label person is making his way over to a table to address the whole band. I think that's what it is. Anyway, it's someone making their way over to a, to a table and there's about six or seven people sat at a, an outdoor table and it is the most ridiculous piece of filmmaking you will see ever. It is ridiculous. It's like the editor had an all-night bender on cocaine and then walked into the editing suite and had more cocaine and then said, right, guys, what are we editing today? And that's what they came up with. It's just all over the show. And there are more cuts in that sequence than the first 20 minutes of some films. Like, that is not an exaggeration. And coincidentally, the short film A Gentle Night that I've recommended, look at the way that uses editing and the way it uses visual storytelling and uh, basically just economic visual storytelling as opposed to that scene from Bohemian Rhapsody. But then again, Rhapsody made, like, I don't even know what it made, a, dis a disgusting amount, which makes me think about rushing and you know which is clearly what they had to do and what dictates your work in the example of eric roma he probably wasn't under pressure pardon the pun to finish my night at mords in a week or two weeks or whatever or it doesn't feel like it is it was rushed anyway it feels like it was just down to him and other stuff that feels rushed there's clearly some pressure there and there's some overbearing creative input 
I think sometimes as well, in terms of editing and rushing something, I think you have to take a step back and go, well, what am I, what am I rushing for? What, what's the purpose of this? And I understand if you're working in more of a commercial capacity, you are probably going to rush because there's deadlines. And the nice thing on the stuff that I've been making in the last couple of months is there hasn't been a deadline, which can be good and bad. But it also made me think on a much bigger level and it doesn't even have to mean to do with finishing a piece of work, but in terms of the BFI application, and obviously last time I, I spoke about applications and how overbearing they are on a filmmaker's career, but I just want you to think for a moment about what dictates the work that you create. And for example, I have this BFI application that I probably won't do, and that's dictating my creativity. Like that's dictating what I think about when I get up in the morning and right, well, I need to do this. I need to think of that and I need to do it. And, and it's, it's not coming from an individual place. It's not kind of coming from a pure place. Now that might be overly dramatic because the thought process is, well, I want funding. I'm a filmmaker. I want funding. So I should apply for funding. But then that can also play tricks on the mind in terms of, well, I need to do this and I need to do that. And obviously, as I was speaking about earlier, I've got to have a message. I've got to have something that's topical. It's got to be, it's got to have this. It's got to have that. It can't have this. And you kind of trip up your own creativity. Whereas the other stuff that I've been making that I'd, that I'd shot in July and August and September, that was stuff that came just from me and I, was, I wasn't beholden to anyone else. And so I think that will show. And one of the main things I wanted you to take away from this podcast is what is dictating the way you work? Like, are you waiting for something? And if you are, what are you waiting for? And, you know, if you're waiting for another collaborator, why why are you waiting? What's What's stopping you? And I don't mean that to be like, rush, 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 get it done. But if you are applying for the funding... And, it, and that's that's kind of all you're doing, then that you're letting that dictate your creativity. I don't even want to say career because it, it is obviously dictating your career, but even more than that, it's dictating how you create. And I noticed that sort of this past week when I was editing and I was enjoying it and I was speaking to John about the edits and I was enjoying that process. And then I was waking up to the blank page thinking about a BFI application and that wasn't creative. That was kind of the opposite. And I even had a day where I didn't think of the funding window and I just thought, well, what do I want to make? What do I, what do I want to do next year? What's, what's the big ambitious project? And that's where the excitement and the spark came and I was able to write some ideas down and all that stuff. And you might think, well, why don't you just do that for the the bfi short film but i guess it's it feels different to me anyway i don't i don't know why some of you out there might understand what i'm talking about i'm not holding anything back by that i'm not i'm not being secretive i just mean i, I have a strong idea of what i can do and sort of getting my crew together and making something and i want to push that further and i just don't know if that's what the bfi wants and I think to try and go full circle and to go back to the more ambitious short films that I've been watching, 
and sort of been in awe of and a little bit jealous of. You know, you see these films that are made for £20,000 plus and they spend £5,000 on film festival entries. You know, that's not an exaggeration. And these filmmakers go around the world and they go to 90 festivals or what have you. And that's... Um, that's really impressive and it's and it's really great and those those things those films inevitably get picked for short of the week or they get a vimeo staff pick because they're kind of what i like to call statement films now people would refer to them as calling card films as well like you can have calling card scripts to really put yourself out there but i i've kind of i've started to refer to them as statement films because they are a statement and most of those films they they take they take a lot of time. They take a good time to make because it takes a lot of time to get that funding. That doesn't happen overnight um, and it doesn't happen in a couple of months. I would say it takes pretty much the best part of a year to make a film like that. And then it takes probably another year to do the film festivals. And for some reason, well, I, I kind of know the reasons, but for some reason I've I've not done that or I've been afraid of doing that because... It's very time-consuming and it's kind of an all-or-nothing process to go out there and go, right, I've written 10 pages or I've written 15 pages and I need £20,000 to make this happen and, and work up and work on that project. That's kind of been on my mind like it always has in terms of am I rushing things, am I not going for the statement pieces of work that I know if I did I might see more joy or you know just on terms of a level of craft as a filmmaker you want to be making stuff that looks beautiful and is striking and and has a certain level of consideredness to it and editing the work this week and kind of looking over the stuff that we're going to be releasing because I'm losing the plot is a short film that I want to get online the 24th of November and I look at it and I go, this is this is a good sh- good short or a good scene and it's well made and it's interesting and, and it's considered. But then you think, well, is there much stock in a in a two minute considered film? You know, really you should be going all out for that for that fifteen minute thing. But I've spoken about this before. I don't want to sound like an old record. We will get there eventually, slowly but surely. And I don't think it's going to be with this BFI window. But that's okay because I've got plenty of writing to do. I've got plenty of editing to do. And it will happen. Patience. Don't rush. Be Eric Romer. Definitely don't be Brian Singer. Okay, so what can we take away from this podcast? We've, we've, I've, I've waffled on, but let me just reduce it. Don't think of your old work as the enemy. Don't do that. Don't even think of your present work as the enemy because I can get in the habit of that as well. You know, I've had some trips to negative town about horror cells uh, and I don't know why because it's it's a perfectly fine short film, but you get negative and you go, uh, what was I thinking? This, What's this going to do for my career? You know, you, you think all sorts. So don't think of your work as the enemy. Celebrate it, repost it. You're not being an arrogant dick. You just being a creator you've created something and you want to share it with people next tip back your shit up i had to have several nightmares for this to actually kick in i'm glad i did in a way because now they're on hard drives and i can sleep much better thirdly 
don't put the message before the storytelling, okay? Don't do it because it's horrible. The audience can tell and they will not like you for it. Don't rush. I've covered that. That's an ongoing theme in this podcast, but don't rush things. But also, don't wait. I know that's tricky and I know it sounds contradictory, but it's not. And go watch A Gentle Night. You've got to be an Amazon Prime member, I know, but it's worth it. Maybe jump on someone else's, but go watch A Gentle Night. Okay, thank you for sticking with me. Thank you for making it all the way to the end of the podcast. I appreciate you. Thank you for listening. Lastly, the next guest we're going to have on here is Misha Calvert. Misha is a super inspiring filmmaker that has made several web series and she's gone all around the world to different web festivals and I think it's going to be a really great chat. So that probably won't be next week, so you'll probably hear from me again and then I'll hopefully have Misha on episode 24 or 25. We'll see. Thank you for listening. Obviously, we want to grow this thing, so please share it with a filmmaker, creative friend or write a nice review on iTunes. You know I love that. And as always, this pod is produced by Ryan McMurray at Bracken Audio, and I'll see you next week.